0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hey, how long does it get, take to get into the Pentagon without a badge? Depends Months. on a yes. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta go. You mean like to, to
2: rob it? You gotta go. Yeah, through, you have yeah. to have yeah. a security clearance. No, I have a
1: meeting, and I usually have that beautiful blue badge that I oh, just no, walk no. By. oh no, now you have yeah. to go yeah. with your yeah. two yeah. forms of
2: ID. Well, if there's not like a tour guide. Or like horrible children trying to get in? It doesn't, take that, long, it doesn't take that long as long as there's not a line.
1: Wait, I'm sorry. The line for people having meetings is the same for tourists oh, and Oh, yes. Oh,
2: you get to go through. Listen, no blue badge, lady.
3: You get to go through the hoi polloi line now just like just all, like the, all rest the rest of us. Just like the rest of us. Welcome
1: and, to your
0: post-government experience. And, <laughs> and there's a special
3: like expedited line for the horrible children. <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Hackers, Heart, Patience, and Hellfire edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. We're in Washington where it's about as hot as hellfire right now.
3: Yeah, I, indeed. I had to go uh, to Georgetown today to, uh, in a little administrative detail in connection with the class that I'm teaching. And The um, Handmaidens of Power? Handmaid, we'll, we'll get to that in, oh. in the object lesson section. But I, uh, from the time I left my car to the time I had to wander around campus a little to find where I was going to the time I got back to my car, I was drenched in sweat and realized that I'm really ready for summer to be over. Yeah.
0: You know, we complain because it's cold. We complain because it's humid. Now we're complaining that it's hot. I Very never complain that gonna it's complain cold. we're going to complain that it's cold again. Um, I, I like these late summer days because they're not incredibly muggy. We don't have lots of thunder showers. Yeah, it's hot, so you go in the shade if you want to. And this is going to stretch into a long, sunny fall. That we will all enjoy oh, until so, so it nice. ends and we'll forget it ever happened. Yeah. All right, Pollyanna,
1: we get it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's your weather report for today. Uh, I'm joined as always by my friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. And this week we have a special surprise guest, maybe the best surprise guest. We've ever had on the podcast. I'm just going to say.
0: Definitely the most important. Definitely most guest.
2: important. And I think it's fair to say this per- person who has probably listened to every, not only every single podcast but probably more than anyone else has listened to every podcast. You hear this person's name every week. Ben, would you like to introduce our special guest?
3: Our special guest this week is the most excellent longtime friend, uh, Jen Patya Howell, Uh, best known to listeners of of this show as its producer and editor, but uh, a, a special, uh, uh, has, has these whole other lives, including being um, the, uh, the uh, force behind uh, m- much or all of the programming at uh, James Madison's Montpelier, which is the, uh, the historic home uh, plantation of James Madison. And I have worked with Jen for, it's got to be close to 10 years now, uh, on one project or another, as Brookings has worked with uh, with Montpelier on, on lots of fun stuff. Uh, so, welcome, Jen. This is actually the first time you've ever actually been to a taping of the show, right?
1: Yeah, I can't believe it's been a year and a half, and, and this is the first time I get to see your smiling faces when, when you record the podcast. So, I'm, I'm super excited to be here. We have I hope Scotch. I can, yes, Scotch is very important, and I'm going to. Just be making funny faces at everyone the whole time to make you crack.
3: <laughs> well, we're we're going to turn to you for key commentary throughout throughout the episode.
2: <laughs> She's usually like, we're going to cut that part. Um, yeah, that just ed- remember that Jen <laughs> Shane, is that the one who stupid.
0: gets this when it's all done. So. <laughs> everything she holds you the you power. The yeah, yeah. You
2: answered all the
3: questions. So right. here's, the, here's the thing to, to, to listeners. If you get through this episode and you hear a lot of Jen – then you'll know that she didn't edit much. And, and if you hear no further word from Jen, you'll know that uh, this episode was severely cut. Right, Jen? <laughs>
1: That's that's absolutely correct. <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right. Well, this week on the
2: podcast, new details emerge about Americans held hostage by Islamic militants. Security researchers use an unorthodox approach to protecting medical devices, and the U.S. kills ISIS's number two. Does it matter? Uh, plus, we'll have object lessons. Of course, our best object lesson is here, Jen. Uh, so we'll try and we'll try and live up to that standard for you. Uh, thanks for your special appearance. Um, let's start with um, uh, this story about. Um, there's actually two uh, in the past week um, uh, sort of important stories about Americans being held hostage by militants came out. One was this um, really kind of just powerhouse report by uh, James Gordon Meek and Brian Ross and the investigative team over at ABC News, um, revealing, among other things, um, the proof of life video that was recorded by Kayla Mueller, who, of course, was a hostage we've talked about a number of times on the show, who was held by ISIS and died uh, in ISIS custody. Still, circumstances around her death were, uh, I think, have been disputed by both sides. But what this ABC News report really makes clear uh, is that uh, messages were being sent back Uh, on her behalf. It's a really heart-wrenching, actually, thing to have to watch, uh, but I think really important. Uh, And also, uh, really, kind of an indictment, I think it's fair to say, uh, of Doctors Without Borders and failing to intercede. We can talk about that and whether that was the right thing to do um, on her behalf to try and actually get her back. Uh, and really um, uh, taking some shots and some criticism at the administration's hostage policy, which has kind of undergone this revamp now, and many people are questioning um, whether it has been for naught or whether it's actually producing results. Um, to wit, uh, this week also we saw another video come out from Caitlin Coleman who is an American woman who's being held along with her Canadian husband, Josh Boyle, by the Hakani Network. Uh, she's actually given birth to two sons while they're in captivity, so there's a family of four. Uh, over there, and uh, a lot of questions being asked about uh, what's being done to get them back. I'd love to get your guys' take. I guess let's start, let's start with Kayla Mueller's, you know, story, and you know why. Let's first talk about like why this matters that it is still coming out now. I mean, that we've kind of forgotten maybe to some degree about the ISIS hostages that was a while ago. There have thankfully not been any other Americans held captive. But what what, what did we learn from this, and and what does it? Uh, why is it important to be hearing this story now? Do you think?
1: Well, so. I think there's sort of two parts that are, are really interesting and should be taken um, sort of distinctly. Um, one is sort of the telling of the story of what a remarkable human being Kayla Mueller was. I mean, really sort of um, the the account of her sort of bravery and, and grace under that kind of pressure um, is, I think, just a testament to her. And, and important to tell that story because, you know, people matter. and um, And I think... Uh, it's sort of it's a it's a tribute to to who she was as a person. Um, you know, then there's also this other question of um, Doctors Without Borders conduct um, that is a more um, uh, it, it's difficult to confront. Um, so in essence, Doctors Without Borders, um, because Kayla Mueller was not one of their employees. But also, she
2: was on a trip with one of their employees and she was taken.
1: Right. In, in a Doctors Without Borders vehicle. Yeah. Right. They, um, they declined to uh, intercede on her behalf. She was, uh, she was taken with other uh, Doctors Without Borders employees. Um, once those employees were uh, rescued, uh, Doctors Without Borders no longer participated. Um, and I think uh, far more egregiously, um, the revelations that Doctors Without Borders was given information, um, including an email address that uh, Kayla Mulio's family was supposed to use to contact ISIS, um, that they withheld from the family for mm. seven weeks. Yes. <laughs> Um, you know I mean look uh, we can sort of we can talk about the specifics and we should um, but I do think this is sort of it's an it's an interesting contrast because you know doctors Without Borders has taken um, really a tone of of righteousness on a lot of issues um, right so so attacks uh, you know the u.s airstrike on their uh, their medical facility in in Afghanistan for example you know really talking about the accountability and decency and importance and um, you know uh, undeniably they have a really really important mission. Um, they do incredibly important work. Um, sort of to contrast that not only with the actual actions that they took, but also the sort of the self-justifying and, um, and, and frankly victim blaming, right? She wasn't our employee. She wasn't supposed to be there. If we known she was there, we would have told her not to be there. I, I really think that it's a black eye for the institution. You well know, I, and, I
3: you know they do call it doctors without borders, not doctors without tribal identity and and I think the the behavior of in the institution here really is a you know a sort of circle wagoning uh wagon circling uh um behavior you associate with institutions under pressure. Uh, and I think they looked at this situation and they said, is she one of ours? No. And, you know, that was where they saw their their responsibility is ending. And I think the interesting thing about that is that that's not the posture of the organization with respect to, you know, uh, whoever the the victim community is in, you know they, they they don't say about civilians in Afghanistan. Well, they're not you know employees of us, right. so therefore no, we don't we don't serve them.
0: I I think you're missing something important here. I don't think this is about bureaucratic organizational wagon circling. Um, I think this is about precisely their self righteousness and their sense that their mission outweighs the fate of any westerner who signs up to work with them or or just goes along to help them because what they did was not merely uh refuse to negotiate on behalf of Kayla Mueller with the rest of their employees not merely retain and not transmit this information that their employees when released brought out with them for Kayla Mueller's family but they also failed in giving a security briefing to two of their other employees who were going into the same area just months after these uh, Doctors Without Borders people were taken, they, they did not tell those employees that there had been previous kidnappings. In fact, they told them, according to the ABC News report, that they didn't need to be worried about abductions going into this area. And that, to me, in some ways, is the most revealing failing of all of their Horrific failings with respect to this incident, because it shows me that they care more about getting people in to do the job than they care about the people who sign up on behalf of that job to work with them. And I think that, you know, people are taking on risk to work with Doctors Without Borders. And of course they do that knowingly, but they also do that on the assumption that the institution at some level takes their personal, their interests, their safety into account. And I think this ABC report has done tremendous harm to Doctors Without Borders' ability to recruit and retain staff when this is how they treated their own employees.
3: I I would just like to to say, you know, I I, I sometimes sit here and and, uh, play Shane's sparring partner on matters related to the behavior of media organizations. But I do think this is an example of... Where no self-respecting media organization would have behaved this way, and you know the the uh, the it this behavior stands in really sharp contrast to the way organizations like the New York Times and Reuters and the Washington Post have behaved when people associated with them, including you know people stringers, who, stringers, right. they're fixers, they're you know uh, contract photographers. I mean, people they're just kind of working with drivers. Um, you know, have gotten into trouble and and press organizations have been really uh, bulldoggy and aggressive in trying to protect those people. And I think it's interesting that a human rights protector organization and a humanitarian relief organization doesn't, you know, doesn't play in that way at all.
1: But I also think it raises sort of an an interesting factual question, not just about um, Doctors Without Borders policy, but actually about the U.S. sort of policy towards hostages. And that is that it seems like uh, Doctors Without Borders essentially adopts the position that engaging in uh, negotiations for non-employees further imperils uh, their employees, right? It makes it more likely uh, that individuals are going to be kidnapped. This roughly aligns with sort of the U.S. policy of not negotiating for hostages not paying ransom, the idea being that if you pay ransom, um, that only incentivizes further kidnappings. Um, this has, uh, it's actually a criminal offense to pay ransom, um, although it has not been prosecuted. Um, I think this, like, it, it raises a, a weird question for a lot of people of um, uh what is the are the is this the right way to think about it, right? Does does it actually increase risk? Um and also is are these kinds of policies right as sort of a matter mm-hmm. of first principle. But
3: wait a minute, I think the analogy is really bad there. No one was asking doctors without borders to pay a ransom for Kayla Mill, uh, Kayla Mueller. Pe- people are were asking for uh the sort of interventions and intercessions that they would have engaged in had she been an employee or short of that for the courtesy of passing on contacts and um and the ability to conduct conversations uh, you know that you would expect people to do out of kind of human decency and so i i i don't i think if if it had been you know, a question of like a, an a, an ISIS demand that they rejected for X amount of money. I don't think they'd be getting the same criticism that they're getting right well, now. Well,
2: this also – and I think to Susan's question, <clears throat> I mean what more can be done? What should we be doing? And I think the administration's approach has been – well, it is that – no ransom, but negotiation, there's something short of ransom or that's not ransom that we're willing to engage in. So the two big efforts that have been stood up is there's now an envoy and a deputy envoy for hostage policy at the State Department. Um And then there's this thing called the FBI fusion cell, which is supposed to kind of gather all the intelligence and the leads across government, but also be the interface to the families. But when you talk to people about how that's going, it, it's not entirely clear to me, If there's a lot more things we could be doing that we just aren't, or if there really, at least in some of these cases, just that aren't aren't that many things we could do. It's definitely the case that with the prisoners with the Haqqani network, like Caitlin Coleman and Josh Boyle and their kids, Haqqani has signaled many, many times that it's open to ransom payments. It's signaling that it's open to prisoner exchanges. They want to negotiate. It's debatable, I think, in some people's minds whether ISIS ever wanted to negotiate and what we could have done. But you know Ben, I agree with you, and what everyone else is saying too. I mean, there is just a basic level of courtesy and common decency involved with passing along information to the family because frankly it 's the family 's right in my opinion, and I think the administration would back them up on this to decide how they want to engage and The administration has said publicly now, we will not prosecute anyone for paying a ransom we we can 't say that it 's legal because it 's not, but we won 't prosecute them. And importantly, the ISIS families believe that they were told by a senior White House NSC official, you will be prosecuted if you do this. So, you know, I think the administration is trying as best it can now to sort of do what it can through diplomatic channels for people who are willing to negotiate. But basically say to the families, you know, well, they're not saying it's all on you, but a lot of it actually is on the families. But, you know, to try and to some degree maybe empower them to do something about this. I don't know what more could have been done for Kayla Mueller, but I mean – Jesus, they never even gave her the chance if they're not handing over this information.
0: Well, I think that's absolutely right. But I also think that one of the striking things about ISIS and the, the longer that they've been around and the more that we've seen them operate, the more we understand just how many people, Iraqis, Syrians, as well as third country nationals who come through their territory, they have kidnapped and they've used for a variety of purposes. Yeah, some of them they ransom. Some of them they use as sex slaves for their fighters. Some of them they use as cannon fodder on the battlefield. Um, some of them they use for propaganda purposes by beheading them on videos. And, you know, so there, there is a really multifaceted, multidimensional, uh, function. In the ISIS universe, for hostages, and I think that that means we can't necessarily draw any conclusions from this one instance for how U.S. policy should approach the issue. Um, and I think it also points to just how tough this is, just what a tough policy dilemma this is for governments who find their nationals in this position. Uh, nobody wants to be there, and and no government wants to be there, and. You know, you say that at this point, the U.S. government would probably back these families up on the idea that it's their right to decide how to engage. But it it seems to me that that's something that has come from the policy shifts that we've seen over the last couple of years. I'm not sure that that would have been the stance of previous U.S. governments in previous instances. They would have said, no, it's the sovereign right of the United States to decide how to do this.
2: I think that's right. Okay, well, sad stories, Uh, hopefully happier endings to come uh, for those still uh, being held hostage. Um, Let's move on to, um, this is one of the weirder cybersecurity stories I think we've talked about in a little while. Um, Susan, you're going to give us the recap on this, but security researchers discovered a flaw in medical devices, heart pacemakers, and rather than go to the manufacturer to get it patched up, did something never one's ever really tried before. What happened?
1: Uh, this is certainly an interesting story. Um, so, this is a, a group of security researchers um, working for MedSec, um, which is a sort of cybersecurity startup. Um, they research medical devices, right? So, networked medical devices, um, including pacemakers and defibrillators. Um, and they found a vulnerability uh, in one of those devices um, that would allow them to actually turn it off remotely. Right? It was a so- bad ticker. <laughs> Ah, So you have a pacemaker implanted, and (laughs) you're so proud of yourself. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Jen, don't edit that. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> this is serious business, shame. It is very serious. Um, so, you know, right. So you have a pacemaker implanted, and they, they've now proven um, that they can sit down and turn it off remotely. Um, this is obviously a big deal. Um, ordinarily, you would expect these kinds of researchers to go to St. Jude's Medical, which is the, um, the manufacturer, and let them know. Um, they can uh, try and obtain a bug bounty. Um, they can try and do it to gain publicity. There's sort of, there's some, some minor gains to be had. Um, In this case, uh, MedSec did not do that. Instead, they went to an investment firm, uh, Muddy Waters, um, which is the great name. The best name,
2: especially (laughs) for what is about to happen next. (laughs)
1: Uh, Muddy Waters then takes a uh, short position against St. Jude's stock, meaning that um, if St. Jude's stock falls, they stand to uh, make additional money. Uh, They make a deal with these cybersecurity researchers that the more the stock falls, the more they will pay to these researchers for the information. Um, And then they tell everyone, hey, that pacemaker that's in your heart right now, I can turn that off. And um, not surprisingly, St. Jude's shares actually did fall. Um, So this is... uh, A pretty incredible thing. Um, One, some really scary questions about the security of medical devices in general, which is something people have been talking about for a very long time in sort of a theoretical way, um, but we haven't quite seen uh, this kind of manifestation yet. Um, It's worth noting that um, they didn't uh, announce how one might exploit the vulnerability, um, and they don't believe that it could be discovered. It took them months, and so they don't think there's any immediate risk to anybody right now um There's also a really uh, some difficult questions about how exactly you incentivize research into medical devices, right? Um, It took uh, MedSec many, many months uh, and a significant upfront investment to discover these vulnerabilities in the first place. Um, If you want to incentivize that kind of research, there has to be a way to compensate for it. Um, Well, they
3: just found one.
1: They just found one. They just Uh found a really big one, right, which places a huge incentive on companies like St. Jude's, Which has been criticized in the past for ignoring warnings about about vulnerabilities in its products, uh, it in, it imposes a pretty significant financial penalty.
2: And and, and did the reporters for Bloomberg the Bloomberg that did this piece did they say that in the past medical device manufacturers had not been terribly forthcoming about? These 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 flaws and like this is like as a community like some it seems like some security researchers thought they weren't particularly receptive to the traditional means of pressuring them to fix the problem.
1: Right. They reference um, sort of a DHS report and, and also just kind of a general sense that um, when vulnerabilities have been reported to companies in the past, um, they do not take sort of remedial steps and instead attempt to hide the information. Right. To to. Um, but,
3: but, Susan, can I just ask? why isn't this, why shouldn't our reaction to this be, this is great. The vulnerability doesn't get disclosed in a fashion that can endanger everybody's health. The company pays a a large stock price penalty for not maintaining first-rate cybersecurity. Uh, It will presumably now uh, has a, a remarkable incentive to plug this vulnerability as quickly as possible, and uh, you know, retro- and it's not
0: insider trading. It's right, not inside and, information. And so,
3: so, why is why shouldn't I look at this and say this is a great outcome?
0: This is the market working the way it's meant to work. Although, if I think about it in like game theory terms, like what kind of game is this medical security? A uh, research firm playing, you know, the traditional game that you would expect it to play is blackmail, is to go to the device company and say, we know something. We're and gonna if they don't want to turn what...
3: off all your patients' no, talks. Or we're
0: gonna, we're gonna make this public unless yeah. you pay us, right? And that's, that would be a traditional business model for a cybersecurity company. Which does company. happen. It happens a lot. And we're, we all seem to be okay with that in the world. But this is more like warlordism. Right? This is their sort of um, taking this uh, unique capability that they've uh, discovered or developed and uh, putting themselves in the position of being able to elevate or crush uh, various actors in the market um, by how they choose to behave with this unique capability.
2: Well, they could have done that before anyway, though.
0: Well, yeah, Just right. nobody would have shorted it. But, right, so they decided to sh- to really be a warlord, which is to use it to their own advantage yeah. and enrich somebody else but, along the way. But, but, but it's but, a very – it's a different game than we're used to seeing in the market. I think that's why we're uncomfortable
3: with but it. But I, I I sort of feel like I'm not uncomfortable with it. Of course uh, you're not. Well, I'm just playing <laughs> devil's advocate here, but I, I, I'm I'm maybe even talking myself into believing this. Look, they've figured out how to monetize it which incentivizes their good behavior and dis, uh, the, the research that you're talking about. And it disincentivized the bad behavior of, of having designed the insecure product. They've done it without blackmailing anybody. They've done it without threatening anybody's health. Um But they did give
0: I think... the company a good faith opportunity to fix it on their own. Maybe that's why it feels so
3: mean. But 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 why should but they they? Sort of what? Do. they don't they don't owe the company Look, anything.
1: I think the response to this is because um the the standards of ethical resource research um are supposed to prevent uh, a lot of potentially really scary behavior. Um, so if if we sort of um, take this as uh, acceptable behavior, right? that great, they found a way to have the market impose a cost. Um, what's to stop, for example, um, somebody from discovering the same uh, vulnerability and then selling individual people who have a device implanted in them uh, the patch, right? And starting a whole a whole secondary market. I, I think that you know, look, we're talking about something that could kill a human being. Um, and so I do think we have to think about, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, medical devices, stuff that, I mean, it really has the kind of direct connection to human lives differently than we think about, you know, email security or, or the other sort of cybersecurity threats we've seen.
3: So I totally agree with that. And I think you you definitely, if you're doing research on a, you know, on a, uh, the security of a medical device that is, uh, already implanted in large numbers of people, you have a very deep obligation to do that in a way that's not going to cause damage to those people. And that means, it seems to me, that you don't want to be dealing with the individuals um, because, number one, uh, if you try to sell a patch to uh, 50,000 individual consumers, large numbers of them aren't going to buy it, Large, some of them aren't going to afford it, the beef that you've identified is with the manufacturer, not with the individual patient, and you shouldn't be trying to extort uh, something from the individual patient. On the other hand, I also don't like the idea that you go to the company and you threaten them. It's one thing if the company has a bug bounty program. But this company isn't responsible enough to have a bug bounty program even before they install large numbers of, of life-saving devices in people's
1: hearts. Right. But a bug bounty program, you know, at, at its max, it's going to pay out what Apple pays, $50,000 for an exploitable vulnerability. Taking a market position against a massive corporation could net I mean, we could be talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Right.
3: So, again, I'm, I, I come back to this seems elegant to me. The information doesn't get out to the public. No threat is made against the company. No threat is made against the individual patient. The researchers are very generously compensated for their efforts. And the company pays a significant regulatory penalty and develops a very substantial incentive to fix the problem. Why why shouldn't we look at this and say, this is beautiful?
0: Okay, so I, I guess two points. One is a question. Does the U.S. government or does the public more broadly have any interest um, that is that is implicated by that business model? Um, because maybe it's just elegant given the incentives you created, but maybe there's some dimension of market volatility or a vulnerability to individuals that uh, that is impinged upon by this. But the second question is really the one i don't know the answer to and maybe we'll see in the coming months how many medical device companies became more responsible and or hired this cybersecurity research firm in the wake of this incident and how many of them looked at that and said oh my god you know we have to do something to protect our um our uh stock dealings in other words the incentive it creates might not be about cybersecurity. The incentive it creates might have something more to do with the way these companies are positioned in the market. And that doesn't solve the cybersecurity problem.
1: Look, I think at the end of the day, it's we're seeing more evidence of the fact that the U.S. government does not know how it wants to deal with major cybersecurity issues, right? It's sort of taken this – it's punted for years and years and years, Um uh, you know, sort of voluntary information standards, and a little bit with regulated this is voluntary entities. Voluntary
3: information sharing, right? But
1: when, <laughs> when <laughs> yeah. the government I mean, is
3: like this, is like very selective and it, it's sure it's on
1: steroids, right? But look, I, I think that the um, uh, this is a you know evidence that whenever there is a vacuum um, and sort of a, a market failure in the area, um, either the market will come up with its own solution, which we may or may not be comfortable with, um, or there's a need for some sort of regulatory response. I mean, for me, the real um, sort of concern is uh sex representation that because it took them months to identify and exploit the vulnerability, it's going to take other people months to identify and exploit the vulnerability. So I'm sensitive to this particular argument because it's the exact argument used against NSA, um, which I would presume has uh, significantly more capabilities um, than, a, than a, you know, cybersecurity startup. Um, uh, and sort so of... So you um, worry now that,
0: ru- that Cozy Bear And Fancy Bear are working on pacemaker vulnerabilities.
1: This person, uh, the uh, (laughs) the researcher, literally says, um, "We see no evidence of an immediate threat." Well, what if you're wrong, right? right? What happens? What if you're not so
2: smart? Do we get to
1: charge you with murder? Like, what? What are the? What are sort of the stop gaps here? Ordinarily, whenever we're talking about um, things that are really, really important to safety, so you know, drugs, automobiles, um, that's an area in which we expect to see a strong regulatory regime in order to incentivize particular types of behavior. Um, We haven't done that with cybersecurity. um, Whenever it starts to interact with those areas, so I think my instinct is this is not an area in which we should say, "Hey, there's a beautiful market solution," but say, "Hey, whenever the market's coming up with uncomfortable solutions, that's the." Time to really wield strong regulatory authority.
2: How much money did they make off this?
1: It's. I mean, we we'll see how far how low the stock goes.
2: So this this is out now, and this 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 just keeps going. It had fallen
1: four percent at the time of the initial reporting.
2: And so this company will keep getting paid for more information. They'll get. They will get
1: more and more and more money the lower the stock goes.
2: Tempted to ask what James Madison would say. (laughs) What would James Madison say?
1: I think James Madison would say, what's a pacemaker? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Excellent. What's what cybersecurity? That's true. Um, all right. And, let's and did short sales exist then? Ooh, that's a good question. In the times of the founding fathers, did short sales exist? Did we have exchanges at the time of the uh, – Of course. I mean, people bought stocking companies, right? Absolutely. James Madison would totally have short sold, sh- a short sale position, right? He's a smart guy.
0: He was a short guy. I mean, there's
1: literally a book on the shelf right now that Sorry, says, what would Madison do right above your head? That's true. There's, like, about six copies, so I we'll get that. back to you. But listeners. there is not a
3: chapter either on cybersecurity, short sales, or pacemakers. No. Time
1: for volume two.
3: Exactly. Um, <clears throat> and time for wordplay number three. Oh,
2: that was terrible. Um, all right, so it was announced yesterday that the United States uh, – well, we think it was the United States anyway. It was either the United States or Russia. Both are claiming, uh, that they killed, uh, the number two, uh, top official in ISIS, Abu Muhammad al-Adnani, uh, who had worn a number of hats, uh, kind of a deputy ISIS figure, an operational figure, a spokesperson, Boom. Um, yeah, boom. Not
1: wearing hats anymore.
2: <laughs> that was your last tweet. Oh. Um yeah, all those hats are gone. Burned up. Um this was actually probably, I think it's fair to say, the probably the most high profile, highest level um targeted killing of an ISIS member. I mean, if it it's either him or Baghdadi. Um it was greeted by a lot of people. Uh, in the defense establishment and some members of Congress as a sign that, look, the war against ISIS is making progress. If we're now able to isolate the number two guy in the organization, um, who presumably was going to some length to try and keep away from the business end of a Hellfire missile. Um, but that's good. The intelligence is good. The organization's crumbling. Um, there's also the counter argument, which is that, uh, the number two will just be replaced by the number three. And then the number three guy will be replaced by the number four. And that really the networked structure of a terrorist organization makes these kinds of hierarchical, you know, you know strikes really not as meaningful as they would be if you were taking out, you know, a, a, a deputy, uh, commander-in-chief or, you know, sorry, a vice president of a country. Um, I don't know. Should we be sell- – I mean, we should obviously be – it's obviously good news in terms of the war against ISIS, but ISIS is a pretty resilient organization and pretty crafty.
0: Well, so I guess there are a few different um, lines of argument, I guess, conflated in the, the discussion around the meaning of Adani's death. There's the decapitation strategy – Um, And and how effective is that? Uh, And certainly the U.S. government claims that it is a core part of its strategy and it is very effective and they've killed a lot of ISIS leaders. And this is a a very senior one and therefore very important. Um, I think symbolically, this particular decapitation might be more important because it seems as though Adnani was recognized by at least some in ISIS as eligible to succeed al-Baghdadi as caliph. Uh, and so symbolically in the sort of uh, – the the religious ideology of ISIS, it's, it's meaningful and it's a blow. And of course the fact that they had sufficient operational intelligence to deliberately target him and get him, if in fact they did, um, not only says something good about American intelligence, but it also
3: – Russian intelligence. Or, or
0: Russian intelligence. Uh, but it also likely – makes some of these ISIS guys run a little scared or feel a little more mistrustful about those around them, and that's going to hamper their operational capacity. But at the end of the day, I think we have a problem that we've discussed on the show a number of times, which is that, you know, the starting out premise of the campaign against ISIS is that the territorial base of this organization is meaningful. It's a source of power. It's an indicator of its strength, and that if we can diminish its territorial capability and the number of people fighting for it, we can weaken and ultimately destroy it. And what we've seen is that ISIS has adapted to our strategy in part by conducting out-of-area operations that have been very costly and that have targeted. Westerners, Western capitals, Western targets. And so every time we have a victory like this, my immediate thought is, oh crap, now they're going to go bomb another European city.
1: Right, but I do think it's notable that the decapitation strategy is not alike with regards to, to different types of people, right? So there are some roles that appear to be, um, when occupied by positions of individuals with particular charisma um, or ingenuity, actually their, uh, their role itself and their sort of personal existence um, does appear to have sort of an outsized influence, and it seems like this might be one of those cases. Um, so Adnani is sort of the, um, the propagandist, right? sort of the person who, had, um, who has been most effective in issuing this call of um, uh, sort of a weaponizing um uh ISIS aspirants are sort of around the world right of um you know attack people in the west attack them with a, with a rock or a, or a car or whatever you can um and that uh he's been very successful in sort of um mounting that message and spreading it um and so i do think it's it's uh it's possible that there isn't going to be sort of the next person to step into those shoes um who will be um quite as effective
3: I also think that, uh, you know, I I agree that ISIS is adaptable and adapting and behaving differently. uh, But I don't think that we should conclude from that um, that, you know, it's not good to kill its leadership and to reduce its territory because then they'll turn into a regular terrorist organization and, and do bad things in Paris. You know, they were doing bad things in Paris uh, even before this k- strike killed their 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 leader, uh, one of their leaders. And so, you know, I think right now they're an organization that controls a lot of territory and conducts overseas operations. And if we can take away some of that territory and kill some of their leaders, and then they can only do bombings and, you know, th- that is a better situation than if millions of people have to live under them and they're a threat to the Iraqi government.
0: You know, um, you're right, but you live in a dark, dark world then.
1: <laughs> I think one of the most interesting parts of this, though, is that the Russians are trying to claim credit for it, right? Yeah. So, so the Russians posted, so essentially saying, you know, we killed... Terminated. Exactly. <laughs> and the Pentagon released a statement that basically was like, like hell you did. Yeah. Um, I just think cla- that's sort of... We're uh, buying for credit. Well, I guess thumping. Of, and I
2: sort of actually, I, I, I think I sort of... Approve in a way of of that kind of gloating, maybe is the wrong word, but taking credit for it. Insofar as when you're fighting an organization that clearly is is an ideology, now expressed as this movement that has made such amazing and I don't use that in a complimentary way, use of propaganda, um, you can kind of fight fire with fire here. And there have been a lot of people who've said, look, at the way to actually. Counter the ISIS message, particularly if it's in social media or in communities that are susceptible to being radicalized or recruited, is to humiliate ISIS. It's to condemn them. It's to say they have a terrible message. And you know, one way maybe of doing this is saying, you know, you're not so tough after all. We found your number two, and by, oh, by the way, number one, we're coming for you too. And I mean, it's not really in this administration's nature to gloat in that way or to be threatening. I think a Trump administration would probably be. He'd be tweeting a- all a- kinds a- of things Brad about
0: McGirt. it who is the head of – the U.S. head of the – or envoy to the coalition to defeat ISIS – does a lot of gloating on Twitter and in public statements about U.S. and coalition achievements against so that's ISIS. that's kind of and, maybe his
2: role, yeah, yeah.
0: He's the gloater-in-chief. Yeah. So in chief
2: And do you right. think that that resonates? I mean, am I being too, like, short-sighted in, in thinking that that's actually going to be a message that people who we want to reach are going to be moved by?
0: I've always found it puzzling, actually, and I've assumed that it is a deliberate choice – on his part or his team's part, because they think it's somehow effective either in rallying our allies or humiliating our enemies. But it, it's always rung so oddly to me to have a U.S. official, a, a diplomat, someone from the State Department, tweet things like coalition forces crush ISIS or just, you know, roll over ISIS forces as, as he regularly does. Sure right.
1: feels good. though. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I um, that Whoa. sort of like machismo, I always uh, want to roll my eyes at. Um, That's like you're talking to different audiences. Hillary right?
2: Clinton would totally do that, by the way. Well, she probably would. She would. Yeah. She'd she she, like she, chest bump someone. She'd be badass. <laughs> <laughs> she be on there. She, she'd have like a little like emoticon with like a little bomb.
1: But look, I, I do. <laughs> think she can't eight... use
2: cell phones anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd kidding? Those days are over. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, she
3: uses Snapchat.
2: I hope not. No, she
3: she even <laughs> boasted about it. She said those email those messages disappear without my having it anything. <laughs> uh, anyway, Susan,
1: <laughs> I totally lost my train. I'm gonna have to edit this. Um, where
3: well, you can stick in here the the clip of Hillary Clinton saying those. Yeah,
1: the did thing she about actually
3: say that? Yeah, oh she actually God. did. It was, it was she months got a
1: ago. Big laugh. Look. look. Look, I do think it's notable, sort of, um, and and worthwhile to underscore uh, the U.S.'s uh, superior capacities here. I, I think that's an important message, and I think it's one of the reasons why the Pentagon um, didn't just say that he was killed in an airstrike, but that he was targeted and killed in an airstrike. Right? That really is the message of uh, we were looking for you, we found you, we knew where you were, and we killed you. Yeah, we got um, you. And mm. by the way, all people around the world that think that they're gonna go, uh, you know, to Syria to fight on behalf of ISIS. Um, that's not going to happen, or or this is what's going to happen to you as well. Um, I think that a little bit, um, for example, the the duration of time um, between uh, 9-11 and and actually killing Osama bin Laden, I think those sort of um, narratives do emerge about, you know, look the the inept West, and and it's sort of, it's too big to really do anything, and um, that that does feed into sort of um, a particular narrative about the United States, and so I do, um, well, I could live without honestly diplomats on twitter ever in any capacity um but uh, I, I do think that it serves at least um somewhat of a useful role we
0: do big
1: things damn it we blow people up damn we it. rain death from the sky yeah and it's awesome. There's probably
2: something in the Geneva Conventions that says that's a no-no,
3: right? Well, so there's that great uh, cartoon that used to hang on Cody Poplin's wall. It's the, uh, uh, it's the Constitutional Convention. And uh, the caption reads, And of course we should give the executive uh, the power to rain death from, uh, from electronic drones in the sky. They were very foresighted.
2: Yeah. That James Madison... He knew what he was up to. Um, All right. Let's move on to uh, object lessons. Um, I'll actually go first. Uh, This is my object. It's actually a photo. I could not bring it in because it's quite the artifact and quite heavy. Um, This is a compass computer or made by a grid compass. I remember the grid compass. The grid compass was a very early laptop essentially uh, kind of with a clamshell design and a keyboard and this wonderful glowing orange screen, uh, and the uh, the visionary behind this, who designed it, John Ellenby, uh, died uh, last week. Uh, and I first actually came to uh, know about the Grid Compass when I was working on my first book, The Watchers, because John Poindexter, who was the subject of that book, had a Grid Compass. Wow! Uh, and he would bring it home, and it was like his, you know, it was like his prototype laptop, and he did all kinds of stuff to re-engineer the White House email system which did some fun stuff with that later, um, from the Grid Compass. And he told me all about it when I interviewed him. Uh, And John Markoff in his lovely um, obituary to L&B and the Times talks about Poindexter being a user of this. But uh, it was uh, carried into space. It was actually on the Challenger, one of these, when it blew up and survived the impact.
0: Amazing.
2: Yeah. So um, this is something that has been uh, an early laptop uh, design of which we've all benefited from but uh, had a real – Sort of starring role in national security in the '80s when it was
3: developed. Uh, I remember the and grid, hugely expensive. I thing. remember the grid compass from when I was in high school, uh, and it seemed so wildly cool and futuristic. Yeah, uh, uh, really space age. And uh, I remember there were two like two things like computers that. I read about that, like, I never saw one, but read about at that. One was the Cray supercomputer. Uh, um, yeah. and the other was the Grid Compass. And they were, you know, like these, um.
0: The super big and the super small.
3: Yeah. And they were both like, su- they're probably less powerful than, uh, the Grid Compass is probably less powerful than my iPhone now. But, oh, by a long shot. B- yeah. But, but it, it could do all these things and it had, you know, and it looked like it belonged on a spaceship. Uh, and yeah, so rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, who wants to go next? Who oh, so has objects? Uh, I have an object, um, uh, uh, other than Jen. Um, <laughs> my, we're Jen
1: all objectifying Jen. Yeah, we
3: are objectifying Jen. Um my object is the syllabus uh for the course that I'm going to be teaching tomorrow uh which I'm be- beginning tomorrow. Beginning tomorrow. Yeah, I'm teaching It's a, Thursday
0: you'll start, you know.
3: Yeah, and and if that. anybody wants to, you know, just sort of show up. Um <laughs> you will <the>, take anyone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pay you settle that with someone else. Yeah, that's <laughs> not my not my department. Uh so Georgetown um School of Foreign Service asked me to teach a course on uh law and national security, and so uh, in honor of uh Wells Bennett, who you guys may remember from when he used to guest on 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 this uh show, uh Wells, when he left lawfare and rational security, gave me the Handmaiden of Power award, which hangs uh proudly on my wall, and of which you've um uh, heard on this show before. And so in honor of that, we named this course uh Handmaidens of Power, uh an Introduction to Law and National Security. And it is all framed for the the uh young uh would-be handmaidens of power. You a, see, as, you named as a, this as a course high...
0: sarcastically, but the students are gonna take it seriously. So so here's the thing. <laughs> I tweeted it's been
3: I tweeted the name of the course. Um and directed the tweet at Glenn Greenwald to try to bait him into responding and taking it seriously. And then I started my stopwatch to see how long it would take him to do it. And it was within 40 minutes. Glenn had tweeted that this was the perfect name for a course taught by me. Uh, And he said, good job. (laughs) 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 So I am – my object lesson is the course entry, Handmaidens of Power, an Introduction to Law and National Security, and the Overly Earnest, Predictable Response by Glenn Greenwald. But you wanted that. Oh, I so wanted it. I was just an effort to see if I could get him to do
2: it. Is he going to guest lecture? No. No. Oh, he should. Yeah. I'd, I'd happily have him. That's awesome. But
3: he doesn't. Okay. He doesn't Open come
2: an to. Open
0: invitation to Glenbrook. Green- yeah. No, Ben. You
2: need to have him and like on Skype, and then like the little robot Snowden.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they'd agree to come teach my class. Uh, they don't like me very much.
2: Oh, no, that's the whole point. Is they would want an opportunity to, you know, clean up these young impressionable minds that you are polluting. How do you The say future of the foreign service.
3: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, 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 Nor do I know how to say it in Portuguese.
1: <laughs> they they just have to teach a different class, a different version of the class.
2: Well, good luck to you um, and your future students. <laughs> Seriously, Especially Godspeed, guys. <laughs> I believe that children are our future. <laughs> That brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find a link to our show archive at spaghettionthewallproductions.com. And please remember to rate and review the podcast when you download it on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. We really appreciate it and helps others find out about the show. Uh, remember to follow us on security at R-A-T-L security. I think after now that the summer's over, we'll get back with some uh, listener questions hopefully. I would love to actually do a show that was – uh, largely about listener questions again. That's been really
1: fun.
0: Or listener rants, but they can only be 140 characters each.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Or listener personal insults. Ooh, oh, what's. Whatever. Don't Marriage at ben. <laughs> proposals.
2: <laughs> direct those to Ben, too. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we look forward uh, we'll to. We'll direct
0: those uh, to Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Exactly. Uh, the podcast is edited, of course, by Jen Howell, who thanks again for being here, Jen. Thanks for having me. Have you already decided what you're going to cut out of this podcast? Absolutely. Awesome. It's it to be about 20 minutes shorter. Uh, our music was performed this week by Muddy Waters and the Short Tickers. Ooh, very right, good. pretty good. Nice you're back, that. you're back. You like that? I'm back. It's not even Labor Day yet. No, of course, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan, who, uh, best I know it, does not have a pacemaker, is not a hacker.
0: And it's not a handmaiden in power.
2: It's not, definitely not a handmaiden But it's in open power. to your proposals on <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Send them her way. She's going to be so happy. Sorry, Sophia. <laughs> on behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, Tamar Kaufman Wittes, and Jen Howell, thank you all for listening. We will talk to you next week.